I'm looking like I'm gonna get it, you probably don't get it I come in your house with a microphone looking like I'm about to set up a show in your kitchen I'm out of my mind but I feel like I'm in it If I never make it, don't make any difference, I'm still gonna kill it You know what the deal is, I never know telling when I'm in the building And F is a monster, I am a villain My music is sick and you don't know what ill is You better get back, I don't write any filler I write what I feel and I'm feeling a million So you better shh, be quiet, you hear it? I'm about to lose it, I'm on a whole different level of music Don't treat me like I have no clue how to do this You better rethink what you're thinking and move Now picture me writing when I was a kid trying to make it in music I think it is crazy, I spend all my money on studio time Trying to get on my music so people can play it. Keep it 100. My music was terrible. Learn to get better the more that I made. Go back to my moments. This is your There's a Column in There leader. Shovel Lake Public Radio, Cedars Gear Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fastest growing Nordic ski specific endurance focused podcast in all of Lake County. We are bringing you the hottest and boldest takes. We have a corner on that market, by the way, here in Lake County, Nordic ski-specific hot takes. So don't even think about it. Although we discovered last week that there is another podcast called the Leadville 100 Podcast, and they seem pretty legit. But do they play fun rap music at the beginning of every show? Is every show originally introduced? No. No podcast that we are aware of is. Really don't care if I'm nameless. Y'all just driving around. I know what my lane is. Hockey, not competitive. This is a job for me. It's adrenaline. Don't try to box me in. I am Mayweather. Come in the ring. My punch is a weapon. I never drink, but I live in these bars. The moment you blink is the moment you lose. Say you a king. A lot to get to, as always. There's always way too much to get to. We need to make this a daily show, I think. Because content is just, it's pouring out at far too fast of a pace. And, uh... Before we get to any of the discussion, we need to recap what has been going on in CedarSkier.com Incorporated Industries the last week. Um, it all started, uh, well, it all started back in 2015. For those of you who um, haven't known me for that long, um, in the 2014, really, in the winter of 2014, I was finishing my student teaching as a music educator and a middle school band, and at the end of teaching 95 middle school flute players, I'd come to pretty much one conclusion, that was, oh, do we really want to do this the rest of my life? Um, and it had nothing really to do, I think, with music per se. I wanted to be a music educator since about middle school, really since I started doing band. And um, in my in my head, I the way I saw it, Music and sports were both ways that you could influence young people. And so I still believed that, even at this moment. I I did navigate high school and college as both an athlete and a musician, and I think I sacrificed both um, callings a little bit in doing both of the activities. So my music was definitely um, sacrificed a little bit from the sporting um, commitments that I had and then vice versa, too. I mainly just wanted to give myself some options moving forward. And so I started looking into um, a master's degree in a completely different subject, that being sports exercise science. And so as I was finished, I was simultaneously here in my first year of marriage. I had been, I was hurt, um, but cross training way too much and, and be, and getting kind of injured here for my fifth year of track and, and then uh, later on the side, I started substitute teaching just to make some money. And I remember 
actually getting the call as a substitute teacher in the winter from Dr. Tracy Robinson at Adams State University saying I had been accepted into this master's degree program and thinking, wow, new life. This this year had been a very difficult year. Like I said, I was injured and I ended up missing my entire track season, the, the one track season that I actually didn't have really any academics in the way. So it was going to be really this magical fifth year um, and, and it turned out to be nothing. I didn't even, didn't race a single track race, which was, uh, you know, another story for another day, I guess. But that's when this whole degree plan started. And um, we moved to Alamosa uh, and, the, you know, the night before, basically, this is August, the, before kind of starting our lives, I decided to apply to be a substitute teacher at the school district. They had a music positioning that was a music position that was open. It was full-time elementary music. And I ended up taking that kind of with a thought of, well, what's the worst case scenario? Let's work this for a half a year or a full year. And I can take one or two classes on the side. If it's really terrible, I, you know, can quit and, and really go full time with classes. And if it's not, you know, then all the power to me, I guess. I, I guess music education isn't so bad. That 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 job was, and, and now I best back to running again, finally. So I was running, and we were married. We were living in this tiny little junkie apartment. That was our lives. You know, my wife made a big turn as well. She went from being a math teacher, and she had been a math teacher for two years at that point um, at Carl Ben Eilson in Fargo, and then she taught in Alamosa as a special education teacher. So we both made these kind of crazy turns in August, a week before school started, books all over the living room trying to teach ourselves how to set up our classroom for all these kids. Three magical years in Alamosa, and I chipped away at my degree, all three of them, um, but didn't get super... Well, no, I actually... That's wrong. I, by, by the end of the three years, I was quite close to finishing my degree. I was, I was about 80% done. I had, you know, two regular classes... A couple of them were online ones. I had my practicum. I had a thesis um, to go. So some big things, but some fun things too. When we were at Maine that year, that fourth year, uh, everything seemed really aligned because here now I was the head Nordic ski coach. I had uh, theoretically athletes. I had access to a roller ski treadmill on a lab. So I could kind of do whatever I wanted. And, and it was all right there. It was going to be really amazing. And I got to work on my writing my thesis uh, proposal, my literature review, did a lot of work on that. I scheduled a practicum in Norway, so things were kind of on the up. That only lasted one year, of course. The program um, was headed on its way out, and so when I found that out, you know, decided to look for some other jobs, and that's how we came back to Leadville. And I was a band director here this first year here, and, and that was my first chance going all the way back to, you know, five years ago here I was going to try and finally, or I was going to get to be a band director, which was kind of the original seventh grade dream. And two months into that school year, after packing up everything, hauling it all back, living in a campground the first couple of weeks in Leadville, moving to a really gracious church family that opened up their um, basement bedroom for us for a couple of weeks, uh, and then getting in our rental home eventually, a lot of moving, a lot of moving trucks, a lot of broken cars. We, we had some pretty crazy perilous adventures that were in there that were I'm just going over. Um, and, and through all of this, you know, calling Dr. Robinson again every five or six months with this crazy dramatic life update and then a consequentially, you know, degree altering path. That, that had become the norm at this point. Well, a couple months into my band directing position with a 
brand, or I, I guess I was the third band director in, you know, four years, I think it was, uh, trying to rebuild that program. And that was stressful as well, but Leadville was amazing. Um, we kind of had gotten to this point of, you know, I, I basically have my thesis defense to do. I'd finish my lit review. So I had to defend, I'm sorry, propose my thesis. I had to do a practicum and, and then eventually I'd have to collect data and defend my thesis. Kind of these three things left fall of 2019. Um, the band director position was taken away from me. Really. They told me in November, this isn't going to be here. Sorry. Uh, COVID hit, which was amazing <laughs> from a break, do whatever you want standpoint, but it was pretty difficult. Again, going into that next summer, I, I did not have a job lined up for now. This is, you know, fourth year in a row. Um, so the degree, we didn't really know what was going on there because I couldn't get participants to collect data. So I ended up, um, going forward, changing my practicum and doing my final, um, my final course that fall of 2020 and getting ready to propose my thesis. We're just like, we're just going to do this. You know, we got to propose anyway. And I got a job as an online fifth grade teacher that fall of 2020. And in December of 2020, I did a, you know, the Zoom Google Meet proposal, which went really well. And it was fun. I might even have that recorded. It'd be kind of interesting. We could turn the audio into a show. Um, so we had that. And, and we were getting ready to collect data theoretically in 2021, um, but I didn't really have firm commitments from athletes or teams at that point who, you know, the college realm, they hadn't really even started some of their stuff back. So COVID was still very much um, extolling or extracting or whatever. It was flexing its muscles of the Nordic ski world. So we went a whole year um, until, did my practicum, with Bridger Ski Foundation. My wife's going to hate having these sniffs in the audio. Did that practicum, and then Andy Newell was gracious enough to lend me his athletes for the actual data collection, which we scheduled for last weekend in Bozeman, Montana. The finish line in sight. Just get to the finish line. And so... I had planned to do now working for the Vale Daily. I, I had had some stories. I was going to work remotely, but but basically I was going to leave on Sunday, race in Winter Park, this 70 mile crooked gravel race, and then get in the van, drive myself to Bozeman or close to it, drive the next day to the rest of the way, meet with Andy, test athletes, drive home, and really miss like three days of life at the most. And two of them would be my weekend days, my days off. Well, the last second I decided to invite Christy with for this trip. And so, you know, it was like, hey, let's have some fun. We're going to go to Bozeman. Bozeman's kind of cool. And the way back, we can go to West Yellowstone. We can, that's where we honeymooned in January because we're Nordic skiers and we're weird. It was freezing. It was like negative 10. Um, and, you know, we can go to the hot springs. We can get pizza. Let's just make it kind of fun. You know, it'd be cool to have you, you get to be here. And look at how different my life is. I've got an 11-month-old daughter now. I have a different dog. We've been through two sets of dogs, you know, from when we started this. Let's just, it'll be kind of kind of sweet. And it, there's a lot of details here that I'm, I'm going to just leave out. But, like, you can imagine the logistical aspect of um, the stresses that were behind them, such as, like, I hadn't been to these courses. Andy graciously was marking them for me. Um, I had not actually secured the weight room facility for our strength test until you know like three days before I had left I finally got connected with um, the gym 
direct the director at MSU, the fitness center there. But and she she said, "Yep, we've got the equipment you'll need." But I mean, I hadn't actually physically seen that and verified how this will work. I knew I had a two hour span to run through all four one rep max tests with ten athletes, and um, so there was some stress there, just of like. It, once I get there, can we actually pull off what we came to do? Um, but anyway, we hopped in the car Sunday morning about 4.15, 4.20 in the morning um, to drive to Winter Park. Made it there at about 6.50 or so. And I hopped out and I was looking around this parking lot here, Rendezvous Park, Winter Park. And I'm thinking, well, this is kind of interesting here. The race starts in an hour and 10 minutes. Where am I supposed to go to get my packet? Like, I am confused. Um Went into this porta potty, pulled up the race, um, the racer packet, and and then realized that this race had taken place 24 hours ago, <laughs> and and the level of shock and stunned disappointment. I mean, I was just utterly crestfallen at this realization. It was I I could not believe or fathom how this had taken place. How the the dozens and dozens of times I had, I had orchestrated this plan to get to Bozeman and do the testing and how I was going to get to do this race. Um, and I'm scrolling through the results like, yeah, wow, there's people here. They like did this race. This happened yesterday. I literally missed it. And and that, that day I'd been, you know, cramming on these important stories, actually working on a really big kind of like not toy department related sports story with the Vale Daily with this uh, hockey team thing. So, I mean, I was stressed out. I was working a lot. It would have been difficult actually to do the race on Saturday. But the important part here is the reason I, Christy, I needed her there too was partially because of a driver because of the close nature of trying to get there on Sunday. And here, if I'd had an extra day anyway, it really wouldn't have been an issue. She wouldn't need to come. The baby wouldn't need to come. And what ended up happening could have been avoided. Um, so after taking about 20 minutes to just stare into oblivion and just feel like a complete idiot, I finally was like, well, let's let's go to Corona Pass. It's like pretty close to here, you know, a couple miles down the road. I'll go for a bike ride. You can let Ajay out. You can go for a walk. It'll be nice. I'll explore this this road and uh, this side of this road. I'd done the other side before. And um, then we'll, we'll get on our way. So I did that. I had a, actually had a great mountain bike ride riding from the Winter Park side to the top of Corona Pass and back. And it was beautiful. And we got on the road by about 10.45. And we drove for 10 hours, 12 hours. And we're in, uh, we're about two hours away from Bozeman. And I saw this sign for a fishing access. And I thought to myself, we've come a long way. I should really just, I should pull, turn around, you know, go back to that fishing access. That was the last great thought that I had. And I came over the next hill. And there were deer flanking the entire street, the entire road. I was going about 55, 60 miles an hour, and there was just no no swerving, no option. I slowed down as much as I felt I kind of could without really throwing the van and maybe endangering us inside. We drilled this deer. You don't even feel it. We, I'm kind of like, whoa, I, I can't believe that just happened. We just hit a deer, you know, and nothing seems wrong. Um, kind of drove another mile. All of a sudden, the coolant light comes on, and then I knew this is not good. And I pulled over into the side of a field and proceeded to get out, and coolant is dripping on the ground. You can you can see it. You can hear it. And we are stuck. And the, the front grill, there is a dent there. The, the Mercedes logo on our grill or whatever in the front has been ripped off. It's gone. And things are just, you know, 
it's it's not good. And I'm kind of like, we are in so much trouble now. What are we going to do? We're in the middle of nowhere. We're not to Billings or anywhere. You know, we're we're at, we're actually coming from the south, so we weren't we weren't to the interstate. We were about 13 miles away. And so started the adventure of Ryan Searquist's thesis line, thesis defense home stretch. And for the next five days, uh, my wife and I were stranded in a small town in Columbus, Montana. And the ordeals of us finally making it back home, um, it, it pretty dramatic. Worth, worthy of a column. That's why we are your, there's a column in there somewhere, leader, worthy of some thematic elements, some lifelong learning. And um, I'm going to save that. You know, I don't want to, I, I don't want to blow um, and give away everything that, I, that I'm talking about in this piece. I'm trying to get up on cedarscare.com here soon. Um, but if you want to know how we survived, that's going to be up here in a couple of days on the, on the website. And, and I honestly, we could talk probably the rest of the show about every little um, hurdle that we had to go over to get to get home, but the end of the story does end with us pulling into 2015 Mount View Drive, Leadville, Colorado, at approximately 11:45 p.m. on Friday night. So that was it, the Odyssey of the thesis. Now, speaking of vans, here's my first story that I have to get to today, and I read this. Um, this might have been, I actually can't remember if I read this uh, while we were still stuck, but the headline from ESPN is Philadelphia Eagles Gardner Minshew spent offseason in an old prison bus focused on Super Bowler bust. It's got a great shot of Gardner, who is sort of the, uh, the real-life NFL version of Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. He's got, you know, cut-off jeans and a hairy chest and just... You know, he fits the bill completely. He's standing on top of this bus. He looks like he went the route of like the GMC, um, you know, kind of shorter bus thing, uh, which I think is a good route. By the way, if you're if you're doing one of those schoolie conversions, I kind of like that. I think there's some like 4500 GMC engine um, buses that are pretty big. They're about the they're about the you know same length of our Sprinter van that you have and and. I think it's just kind of there's more cubic volume, but anyway, he uh, he fitted this gym, this bus out. And he did exactly essentially what I do whenever I go into work and stay overnight, or when I was living in the van down by the river as a teacher. It's like let's make sure there's a bed in here. He had a little more amenities, like it looked. You know, I think he had a couch as well. Yeah, a couch. So it was more comfortable to live in. But his his idea was I'm gonna shower and microwave my food and all that in the gym. I'm going to train in the gym. And I'm basically using this as a place to sleep and just be monastic. And that's that's kind of what he, he said. He's like, I'm living at the gym. I eat, sleep, shower here, everything. It's kind of my own little island here. I love it. Gardner Minshew. Um, and I was like, yeah, man, it totally resonates with me. That's exactly that's exactly the van life calling, at least for me. Like, I, I'm not someone who wants to commit to... Um, owning so little that I'm actually living in a van, but I definitely see the value of, hey, I'm going to take 10 days. I'm going to take a week. I've, I've only gone like that far, 10 days, the Park City one, but I'm going to take that time of like where I'm sort of limiting all the excess distractions of life by by containing, by self-containing myself in this van and then obviously training and focusing around that. And I think that's cool. And it, it does... 
I mean, I was talking with someone else, a different story I was doing, a sports-related story, and I was we were talking about how today people, kids uh, especially, they don't really realize just like how much they have. And, and I, actually, it's not it's not just kids; it's adults too. Yeah, we, I was a coworker, I was a, co- a writer. Uh, we were talking about how, like, you know, camping. One of the values is you realize just kind of how much you have when you are living in a house in terms of the comforts and and all of that. And you also realize when you're in camping what you truly need to get by. And I find that to be interesting too. How like, oh, it's really hard to give up. You know, clean drinking water is sort of a non-negotiable. You really can't make it without that. Although, you know, there are people who, nope, I've got, I've got my little conversion thing here that that filters out stuff, so I can take any water and live. And okay, good for you. But, but I think it it, it boils everything down. You're stripped of all the excesses. And you realize here's exactly what I really need. And when you go back home, you're kind of like thankful, and you live more frugally and simply. You have a little bit smaller carbon footprint. You know, you're you're less of an impact on the environment because you're not so wasteful. And I think that's that's all valuable too. So living in the van, it's got a little pros and cons there. And I found it fascinating that here's Gardner Minshew. An NFL player taking the same route. Anovi is adding to the podcast, as you can tell right now. The one thing that, you know, this article doesn't really say until you really dig in, because, you know, it's Super Bowl or bust, Gardner Minshew, offseason dedication. Here he is. He's lifting. He's improving. He's actually the backup quarterback for the Eagles. So this is kind of interesting, too. You know, Minshew is waiting in the wings behind Jalen Hurts, I think, which Hurts is sort of hopefully the Kyler Murray, the franchise quarterback for the Eagles. So, I mean, I wasn't really sure even what to think. I'm not like a Hurts hater. I think um, he could be a great quarterback. So it'll be interesting to see if this article ends up getting some other teams to like, hey, let's get Gardner. Or if um, the Eagles are like, yeah, we love having this backup quarterback with this much passion. Uh, are they worried about a quarterback controversy? I don't really know. That, that's, I guess, another sports topic, sports talker. Uh, but I wanted to bring that up because of the van element. <laughs> so there it is, ESPN, making the Cedar Skier podcast for that reason. All right, when we get back, we're going to have some letters to the Cedar Skier podcast that we're going to read off, some questions from listeners. And then also, is it possible that Sophia Lockley completely forgot about what is going on in northern Maine Find out after the break. This is the Cedar Skier Podcast. There's no better course. So, And cross-country skiing is meant to be hard. Uh, really fun race. And- Hi, I'm Rosie Frankowski from APU. See, here we have with the hero, Bjorn Daly. Welcome back to the Cedar Skier Podcast on Shovel Lake Public Radio. It is. I mean, that's, that's our sport. So toughen up, train harder, and get in that pack and make it rain. 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 First of all, excuse me, West. Make it rain. I have paraffin ironed onto it once in a while. Speaking about income. Get your head out, Elizabeth. Here come the big one. Make it rain. All right, welcome back to the Cedar Skier Podcast. Time to go to the mailbag here on the show. We do get some letters here from time to time. And so, um,. You know, Ajay has to filter through these. She, uh, she's she been told to give me, you know, mostly positive stuff. But we want to stay honest. We want to get, you know, legitimate feedback. So compliments, concerns, and complaints are all received here. So here we go. First one up. It says, Ryan, great show. Love the podcast. My son is 16, going to be a junior in high school. 
He was a top 10 state meet Nordic skier and qualified for JN's last winter. He's been training very hard, loves the sport, is willing to do whatever it takes to find out just how good he can be. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on hiring a private coach. Gib from Funkley, Minnesota. All right. Um, this is an interesting question here. And I think it was maybe a back at the beginning of summer. Um, I sort of talked about this question of private coaching, especially as it pertains to high school athletes. When we, when the um, Gary, uh, oh, I can't think of his name now, the Pennsylvania runner, the miler, um, Gary Martin, Gary Martin. Um, he was on the let's run.com podcast and talking about how, and he's a 357 guy talking about how he feels a little bit unsure if he should be going out and have a private, getting a private coach, or if he should just stay in the interscholastic realm and you know, what you have at your school is what you get. Um, and at this age, I'm very much a proponent of if possible, you just work with the network available to you and the, the, coaches and the team uh and and i think generally speaking well and and here's why i say that Uh, for young kids you got to look at like the big picture what are they what are they learning and developing how are they growing at that age is is what they really need to have um a person who can provide them physiological knowledge training concept knowledge is what they really need someone to hold them accountable or is what they really need kind of the entire team experience that comes from being on a team with a coach and and I don't know I guess growing in that sense I think uh, uh, when athletes are at this age 16 17 18 um they they're so young and they're still growing and and because of that any any type of training will have um generally some sort of forward movement like they're as long as you're not doing anything wildly ridiculous if you're working hard and you're being smart you're going to get better now you could definitely argue that there are high schools that train stupidly or worse than other high schools and there's some programs whose coaches are are much better at giving their athletes you know the physiological uh correct physiologically correct training plans smart training plans i i'm i'm not i'm not arguing against that what i am saying is at this age you know what we what really matters is that kids love the sport and that they grow in that passion for the sport because that is going to be probably the most important element for their long-term success if they really like it and they have a true desire for it and you cultivate their passion and their discipline and work ethic and drive that can take that that will be the t- determining factor no matter how talented they are and no matter how well um, trained they are and how fit they become we see this even on the world cup level and we talked about this on the last show that 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 killer drive instinct of really wanting it which Brian Fish said is almost a part of talent identification it's the one that they, it's you know there's no test for that becomes the thing that um, it becomes the most important thing. So I think at the high school level, that's the thing that we have to kind of prioritize first of all. And then beyond that, for 99.9% of participants, the next most important thing is that they um, come out of sports and it, and it has had a positive impact on the rest of their lives. So they've learned the transcendent values that sports gives, not just... Um, for themselves, but working with others, being on a team, having that experiential education. 
And that isn't going to occur if you have a private coach, if you're all, all on your own and you, you strike out that way. Um, now, the, the other thing I would caution, and this is where I think private coaching, there's still at least a situa situational element. I don't think this is one of those you should never do it because I think there are kids, even really young kids, um, who ha the, the, the situation for them, the best and most healthy situation might actually be them having a, a coach that coaches them one-on-one. -on -one. It depends on the sport. It depends on the kid's personality and makeup. And it depends on their goals. Um, uh, uh, maybe an example of this in the uh, mountain bike world would be um, the the kid who's, I think he's now 20 years old. He's on the Grand Tour. His name is escaping me right now. I got to do a, a quick search. Ajay, hold on. Quinn Simmons. Uh, Quinn Simmons... I think the the story I wrote about once on a blog was how, or it was a column I had for the Vale Daily. He was his parents, his dad, and his mom were both kind of the the type of like, hey, we're taking you with us no matter what we do. Like we want to go on nine mile runs and seventy five mile bike rides, and we're not going to let you guys, you kids, get in the way of this. So this is what the family does, and welcome to the family. And Quinn ended up taking a liking to long adventure endurance um, things. It wasn't one of those turnoffs. So the, the typical, you know, the common knowledge now is like parents who kind of force their kids into doing those things. It backfires. Well, I think it really depends on how you do it. The way what because what you present as being enjoyable and fun for a kid at a very young age, they will definitely respond in kind. Um, and and you see this the younger they are, the more malleable I think they are to this. You smile, they smile. You laugh at something, they laugh. And um, this kind of can apply somewhat to sports. But I bring this up because I think Quinn Simmons, you know, if at eight years old, he loves cycling. He loves training. He wants to get better. There's not, this is not a parent driven decision. It's definitely a Quinn driven decision to like, you know, get more training or more help. He might've been someone who at eight, if he's homeschooled or something, you, you go out and you try and get private coaching because maybe it's not the best thing to have your dad being that voice. Um, and for some kids, you know, parents actually can be their personal coaches. You like Michaela Schifrin, uh, I think her mom and dad were both kind of instrumental at a really young age uh, and giving them some instruction. But yeah, I, I know examples of that too, where they're not like officially signed on coaches, but they kind of work in that realm. So I guess long answer uh, longer, the, the short of this is it's not a definitive always in every situation. Don't go for it. I think the general principle would be go with the high school um, program that that's available to you. And if you want to go above and beyond, I don't know a little more information about this, this kid, you know, if you're at a school where let's say the high school maybe doesn't have a lot of, uh, it's, there's not a lot of depth to it. So, so your son's not really being pushed in practice. Maybe the coach really could care less. Uh, that might be a situation in the sport of Nordic skiing. Maybe you look to, um, a, a more like uh, a private club, a club team to join. And, and maybe that, maybe it works out where you can kind of do both. You can still compete in high school, but you're really being fed, pushed, coached at the club level. I think, I, I think the importance of a team though, can't really be overstated. I, I don't, I don't, I think generally speaking, you want to have that interaction. That's where memories are made. This is where growth happens. And then finally, again, 
if some coach is totally convinced that they have the blueprint for, for from a training methodology standpoint for kids, I think that's kind of that's crazy. That's crazy. Like if you if money is absolutely no object, go for it. But the fact of the matter is is um, it training responses to training are so individualized anyway. And when you're the younger you are, not only the less. Do, do, do you know less about how you respond to certain types of training? You've also had less uh, types of training to test on yourself. And because you're not fully developed, your body might change. I mean, I think it's definitely a, a standard principle that a 16-year-old might respond to a certain type of training at 16. And then when he's 23, he might not respond to that training in the same way. Like not only are they growing and changing and muscles are growing and changing and bone structure is growing and changing and maybe your flexibility, you also have to have injuries there that start to add up or pile up and have an effect. You have the effect of cumulative training, you know? So the, when you're 25, if you've been training now for 12 or 13 years or competing at that, at a certain level, um, now the, a three hour workout at X effort is going to have a different impact on you than it would for someone who's also been training for 12 or 13 years, but doing different stuff. Like it, this is just a web that is con it's constantly shifting there. And I think that's sometimes ignored. So the, the risk there is like, yeah, I guess again, if money's no object and you want to go out there and go find someone for an added advice, go for it. But um, the cost benefit to me isn't as much. Now I think interestingly, the final tail thing I'll add on to this letter is if you are someone who is you've gone through high school, you've gone to the club level, you've, you've even had a college career and you're, you're 23, 24, 25, you've kind of ventured out. You're a student of the sport. So you went out and tried to learn things about training um, and you've tested some more things on your own, but you're, you're kind of at a, a stalemate here. I think those are the athletes that benefit from a private coach, possibly. Again, it's an investment, so not it's not like for everyone. I, but I think it can be that difference between two to five percent of performance, and and if that's the difference between you having a career in the sport or not, then it's worth it. If it's the difference between you getting like thirtieth at the Berkey or twenty second at the Berkey, it, it might not really be worth it. You know, like you're probably better off. Um, doing what you want to do in training, doing what you want to do in racing, not having the stress of a coach over you, not having the the payments from a coach, you know, like put your money elsewhere perhaps. Uh, but I, I think there are an, a, an area of athletes, whether it's in gravel or mountain biking, maybe Nordic skiing too, or, you know, like a Zach Ketterson type where you're like, you're, you're trying to bridge that gap between a successful college career and like a professional career. Uh, those are the places where uh, having another voice even if you think you know sports science really well and you know your body really well, there is a definitely a benefit of having that other voice on the outside looking at you from a different vantage point, giving their input, and then finally holding you accountable. And I think that's a huge thing. All right, so what else do we got here? Next letter. So thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that letter, Gib. It says, Ryan, I'm curious. What do you think Jess Diggins' legacy will be when it is all said and done? Has she surpassed Bill Koch in the American hierarchy? So this this uh, is interesting that I get this letter because I actually had this thought um, about Jez Diggins recently on, on a on a workout. I was thinking this would be actually a pretty good article, kind of coming into this year, talking about Jess Diggins, what her legacy is. I think it you know 
originally when I was brainstorming that article, what it would be, you know, kind of a New York Times or Sports Illustrated thing, which which could be cool. My idea, don't steal it, all those people out there. I'll say this. I'm the one who could write that article. <laughs> I know the questions that need to be asked. I know how to do it. And I could write that story. I don't think other people could. You, you, you try and take your Sports Illustrated staff writer and do this, it's going to be crap. You try and take your just standard faster skier uh, uh, author who doesn't have the guts of the cedar skier, you're not going to get in there enough. So if you're going to try and go copy this, my idea of doing a just digging story, it's my idea. Okay. Uh, let me answer the question though. Um, Diggins. She won the gold in 2018. That to me put her just an inch above Bill Coke, but it it was not. Um, it was it, it definitely could be. You could argue that Bill still had kind of the same footing on the the Mount Rushmore of Nordic skiers. Um, him and Diggins would kind of be. You could argue who should be the George Washington figure here because even though Cokes was a silver medal, Diggins' gold is you know probably way harder to get. It's a gold. Um, I think Bill, when you look at the the massive impact that he had on youth skiing numbers getting in there, the next generations, um, I think that still holds some weight. Plus, he also kind of the whole skate skiing. Uh, ingenuity aspect, the World Cup win in 1982. Um, he, he, you could argue that he still had a foothold. Well, when Diggins won the overall in 2021, to me, that was kind of the, okay, now I look at both of them equal. But but Diggins still didn't have this individual uh, this individual Olympic medal. And I, and I still also looked at her World Cup um, overall, not quite the same just because of the Norwegians not being involved that whole season. You can argue that I'm all off on that, but I think there's some validity to that argument that like, hey, Diggins is Diggins is a top four skier in the World Cup, like she or top three even. You could argue that that when it comes to the overall title, it's gonna be Diggins and maybe two or three other people that are contending for it. But to have like the entire Norwegian aspect just eliminated the year Diggins wins, I think really tarnishes that a lot. Um, it, it, the statisticians, I get it. You you um you can make a, an argument that Diggins. It, it's like well, look, she's a top three, top two, top four, top five skier for almost a decade here now, and so you know she's she's bound to win one. Yeah, fair, but but the the year she happened to win, we didn't even have the Norwegians really in there, so. To me, 2022 was a huge season for her to kind of, I guess, prove that that wasn't a fluke, that that she's capable of winning everything at any time. And I think she, you could tell she went for the Olympics like hardcore and kind of, I think, sacrificed um, winning the overall this year. Now that you take away from was it Neprieva, I think, won the overall. Like, I don't think I don't think anyone was going to beat Neprieva. Um, even Diggins, if, if Diggins had given up on the Olympics, just, I'm just going to get this overall title. I, I think, um, I, I, I think it would have been really close, but I just, you could kind of sense that like Diggins was like, this is my chance to go get some individual medals. So she gets a couple of medals at the Olympics. And I think now you go, what has she not done on paper? She's got individual medals. She's got a gold medal. She's got a medal of every color. Um, she has the overall title. Has she won a world championship? Maybe it was like a sprint one, right? Um, so you could say that like an individual goal or an individual world championship would be kind of the last thing on there. But regardless, um, her legacy for an American standpoint, she is the most successful American Nordic skier by far. 
and it's it's not even close. And she is also because she's kind of this trailblazing figure. I think she captures um, she captures our imagination, the, this generation's inspiration, unlike anyone else that that we might not ever see again for 30, 40, 50 years. Like she is a once in a generational icon. And I think for that reason, she is the George Washington on the Mount Rushmore. However, her legacy, which is kind of what this question is about, I think is up for a debate because it's hard to to peg Jessie as, well, is her legacy the most successful Nordic skier in American history? Is her legacy as being kind of the trailblazing figure, first gold medal, you know, first person that... Uh, Nordic ski fans could go, we have, we have a legitimate, every time she's at the starting line, she could win. And, and wow, that feels so crazy for us to have a relevant competitor here. Is that her legacy? Um, is her legacy advocacy for women or for the body image debate? You know, those sorts of things. I think, I don't think you could really go like with any of those and it's, you can't really say, well, it's all of those because those are so different. And, and I think every athlete kind of eventually in the history books has to take on one thing, you know, like Michael Jordan has legacy as the greatest basketball player of all time. You don't also go, oh, his legacy actually was, um, you know, the person who really made shoe contracts a big deal or like, you know, brought wealth to the NBA. That's also true. And that you could argue that that's a very impactful legacy, one that's more impactful than just being the greatest of all time. But his legacy is that he's the greatest NBA player of all time, maybe the greatest athlete of all time. Um, you know, and so to say anything, Tiger Woods, greatest golfer of all time, you know, maybe the greatest uh, or richest golfer of all time. He's the greatest. Um, it's you're, you're you're going to, yes, remember the scandals behind Tiger Woods. You're going to remember the injuries, um, the failed trying to get Jack, Nicholas, Jack Nicholas's uh, majors record. And, and you know, you could argue that that's going to affect that legacy. But ultimately, these great icons, they, they grab onto one. And so I think that's the angle of this story is. You know, asking Jesse, like, you're at the par- part of your career now where people might be kind of going, what's keeping you motivated? Um, what what is what are you chasing now? Like, do you do you honestly think in 2026 that's going to be your Olympics to get a gold medal individually? Um, is that is that what you're aspiring to? Are you at the stage in your career where you are satisfied with everything on paper you've done, and now you're just literally going to enjoy the moment? and breathe in the smells on the World Cup and be a mentor. Oh, that would be the next one. Are, are you at the point in your career where you think, I'm just going to focus on being a mentor? I'm not going to care as much about you know my performances as I am about shaping U.S. skiing the way it should be. Uh, you know, there's, there's all those questions where it's like, well, I wonder what her focus and direction is going into this next year. Is it, hey, man, I really actually am hungry to win a world championship I think I think that would be probably a, a, from a competitive sphere. What I would guess is going through her mind is like I, I'm still at the peak, you know. And now Teresa Yohai's gone. We've got these different distances. Everything is the door is kind of wide open for her to um, maybe claim a title as everyone tries to uh, uh, figure out how to navigate the new schedule and and, and what is a world championship going to look like with these distances being different. Diggins is 
you know, arguably, arguably, again, a contender at almost any distance. There's some techniques she's better at or worse, but like she, you, you, you aren't, you're not going to look at her and go, oh, well, she's not going to do the 20 K, you know, like that's <laughs> just ridiculous. So I think if I had to guess, I would say she's just kind of focused on winning a world championship and kind of the gravy would be winning an overall. I, I do think there's a side of her that, that wants to win one where everyone is there. All the players are there. Um, and I, and with Russia on the sidelines, this could be interesting. Maybe this will be, this would be sad. You know, if Diggins comes in, guns a blazing, um, gets a massive lead with no Russian team or Russian athletes in the world cup, you know, and maybe the war in Ukraine ends and hopefully it does, you know, January and all of a sudden Russia's back. And then, you know, it's, it's kind of a half, um, half legitimized thing. Kind of like her other one that would, that would stink, but <laughs> you know, and I guess the only response I'd maybe be a little shocked about hearing, not totally shocked, but if Dickens said, hey, I actually want my legacy to be the advocacy side of things. Like, I want to go down in history as being the person who um, gave direction or, or was kind of a a role model when it comes to eating disorder awareness and body image and also, you know, just women being relevant and tough and competitive in sport and, and just kind of continuing to move that forward, move women's sports forward. If she said that that was what she wanted to be remembered for, it's not, it's not like I'm, that's a cut at Diggins. I'm not saying she doesn't think those things are important, but I, I, I feel like there's, she, she's too, she's too successful to have that be what, what we would remember her for. Like, but, and, and so she's kind of in this middle spot. I, I should say she's, she's right now sort of at the point where if she were to win a world championship and win a couple more overalls, now she's so good. She's so good internationally. Even you'd have to start entering her into the conversation as one of the all time great female Nordic skiers. And so you're not going to remember one of the all time great Nordic skiers for, um, one of the really positive things she's doing on the side. So this is why I think this is kind of an interesting question with, with uh, over Diggins because it, we're just, there's some unanswered, you know, mysterious elements to it. Thank you, Lexi, for that. All right, Ryan, uh, Ryan, I'm thinking about taking your advice and throwing my entire life in the pursuit of training for the Birkin. Did I ever say that was what I was going to do? I, uh, what is the best place to move in the U.S. to be a great Nordic skier? Dill from Sacramento, California. Well, I'll give you, I'll, I'll tell you what, Dill, um, not Sacramento. Okay. Sacramento would be rough. If you want to be like a marathon runner, um, you should, you can live in Sacramento, but no. So this, uh, I'm not going to go into big detail on this. I actually kind of want thinking about launching a segment on the show about talking, uh, going through different towns and cities and regions in the country and rating them for training and competing like looking at their infrastructure looking at their their road quality their trail quality for summer and winter what's it like to roller ski could you roller ski here what's it what are the other training options what's the weather like and actually kind of grading some places and and walking through them making an argument for them and i think there's there would be some fun places that i've either lived in or visited or i'm kind of close to that i i'd love to give like my two cents on what would it be like to be an athlete here? Is this a good place to go? So that's a another segment for another show we're kind of working on. So Dill, stay posted. And last, last letter here. 
It says, uh, one reason I tune in, one reason I tune in to Shovel Lake Public Radio is to hear some of your groundbreaking ideas. Uh, thank you. Thank you. It's been a while since you've had one. I've noticed it sounds like your show's prep consists mostly of you flipping on the mic, plopping down with some hot beverage, and clicking record. We can tell. Stop. Do your homework and get back to us when you have some content worth sharing. That is from Jill Vermont. Wow. Jill from Vermont. Um... Did you get that, Jill? That was. All right. Well, I guess we did say we were going to have some complaints in here, right? We wanted to have some positive, some thinkers, a complainer too. And that was the complaint. Uh, groundbreaking ideas. Let's get. Let's address that first. Well, actually, we can work backwards. Yes. Sorry. The prep isn't always there. Okay. The the Cedar Skier podcast is constantly evolving, and that's my politically correct way of saying that I can be lazy. Okay. Um, good ideas. I did have an idea um, for a gravel event. This is in this is in my head. What do you think of this? Okay, crisscross Colorado. Here's the concept. I found this website that has every single gravel road in Colorado mapped out, and, and so it it looks like like if you took I don't know upper level human anatomy and like a cross section of a muscle you were looking at all the blood veins like there's just thousands of trails and gravel roads or whatever right uh, it's all in this image this map and i was looking i was like what if i could make a uh route from one corner the southwest corner of colorado like you start at the four corners region and then you cross like an x from that corner all the way to the northeast corner of the state and um this would be crisscross colorado okay and the reason I, I thought of that is, in looking at the map, you would go through some of the most beautiful and gravel-rich areas of the state. I I, I don't know exact. Well, actually, no, I, I do kind of know now what the north, the very northeastern quadrant corner of the of Colorado looks like. And I mean, you go through Fort Collins, like they have great uh, great gravel scene. Uh, so I know in general up there, you're, you're not going to be like suffering for very long. Maybe the very end of the race would be kind of anticlimactic. Um, but you could also go from northeast to southwest. There's no bearings on the direction here. And you could also alternate and like every other year you would go from the um, northwest to the southeast, which would, oh my goodness, like finishing in the southeast corner of Colorado would be brutally stupid. But it's ba- it, it's Kansas. It's west Kansas, basically. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you do this. Here's what the, the race would be. All gravel crisscross Colorado and you got like the crisscross so cyclocross and you're, you're actually crisscrossing you know crossing this whole state I'm thinking about 800 miles is what it would be um the, I'm not sure what as the crow flies the distance is but just kind of you know looking at the, at each route I think it would be best to break this into like a six day six stage event um it's sort of like Iditarod like could be you could you could do it that way where um, you make kind of checkpoints in. You could do it just a free for all. Like we're gonna shoot the gun. 
this is the route, do it as fast as you can, you know, kind of a thing. Um, but I actually almost like the Tour de France style. Like we have six stages, 100 to 150 mile stages, have some iconic roads, iconic passes. I mean, there's a ton in the San Juan region, the Telluride or Ure region. Um, as you go through the central area, you know, coming through the Leadville route, the Collegiate Peaks, um, you'd be veering up through... I mean, it depends. You'd have a lot of options. You know, are you going to go over Shrine Pass and the Vale area, the Steamboat region, Nederland? There's just, I feel like all the iconic original mountain bike um, and gravel routes could be included in this. It would just be stunning. Um, but you do stages, stage winners. You could have, you know, King of the Mountain points, sprint points. Just have it basically be like a grand tour for six days. Okay. That's my idea. And I'm thinking about scoping this out on my own because I've always wanted to bike across Colorado. But I realized, honestly, that like on a road bike, this would not be that, I don't know, extensive, maybe is the word. So I'm, I'm sort of thinking that my idea for myself is I'd like to make a really sweet like seven-day camping trip where I'm actually just gravel riding these routes. And then, you know, maybe when I'm like 60, I can organize a race. But if someone with more money... Vision wants to take me up on that idea. I think there's possibility there. So there you go, Jill. There is my latest good idea. All right, so switching gears here a little bit. I mentioned on the last show that Sophia Lockley was on the Single Track Podcast, and I went back and listened to this podcast, and um, I have a couple of thoughts on it. Uh, but before I give you those thoughts, I'm just wa- I just want to play... Um, some clips from this podcast because I think, um, well, it's going to fuel the conversation moving forward. So here we go. This is from July 12th, Sophia Lockley joining the Single Track podcast. That's when I started to run, I guess, more in like the New Hampshire area and actually appreciate that there is quite a good scene here as well. Yeah. Is it true? Um, sorry, I'm trying to rack my brain here. Isn't there some sort of Olympic program up in Prescott? I think that's it might have been where Claire Egan was training for the uh, Olympic biathlon. Yeah, I honestly am pretty unfamiliar with it. I think it's more biathlon oriented. Um, I was always kind of turned off by going super north in Maine. Because <laughs> it's like middle, absolute middle of nowhere. Not a whole ton to do. So, I mean, I've, I've been there, Fort Kent too, in the winter. And like the skiing is phenomenal there. But... I never like did a lot of training there in the summer, but there is there definitely is a pretty legit program. Well, if you look back at maybe the first 20 years of your life, even before college, are there any particular things that you would pinpoint were setting you up to be this elite Olympic level athlete and not just in the Nordic world, but as we'll talk about in a second. Okay, a lot, as they say, to unpack there. First of all, uh, it, let it be known, this is an interesting fun fact here. Sophia Lockley was a senior in high school the year that I was a cross-country ski coach at Presque Isle, University of Maine, Presque Isle, and I had identified her, obviously, as a local recruit that we should try and get. So I sent a few messages to Sophia. I wrote a couple of letters, and um, she was very kind about, you know, thank you for reaching out. She actually had responded to me, which I I really appreciated. There were a lot of, a lot of athletes with a lot less credential than Lockley who did not respond to any of my efforts, um, which is fine on one hand, but I mean, I, I actually went pretty out of my way in terms of like handwriting hundreds of letters. And I think, you know, 
I don't know. I guess I guess uh, when you're a kid, you don't really respect that. But y- y- I would even think as a parent, you might like reach out and be like, wow, that's that's old school, man. Like, wow, I'm, I really appreciate that. And I had a couple parents do that. It, but it was kind of a, I don't know. Now I know that Lowkley, the reason she didn't want to come, she just was a little disconnected. She didn't want to have much to do with the northern part of Maine, which is interesting. The northern part of Maine is way sweeter than the southern part of Maine. Um, so I, I think that's kind of fascinating. But how about the crazy admonition here? Both these people, Mainers, um, think that there's like this world-class biathlon center going on in Presque Isle. And then, I mean, they talk about Fort Kent. Okay, there is a new thing going on in Fort Kent, uh, or I guess a resurgence there. There's obviously a rich biathlon World Cup history now in Aroostook County. Um, And I I actually did pull up a couple of articles. I should link them in the show notes for some further reading because um, I had to go back or I wanted to go back and see what kind of the history vision was of that. Actually, you know what? I'll just pull them up here. Let's, I'll give you the spark notes. If you're, if you're not familiar with this history as the same can be said, obviously now we know of, um, Sophia Laukley, which I think is a little sad. I, I feel like Laukley should have been able to respond to this and go, Oh yeah. You know, there used to be this main winter sports center, but in 2019 it, it became the, um, became OSI, but blah, blah, blah. Um, so I've, I did find a couple of, um, stories uh, that do a pretty good job of, I guess, recapping this. And by this, I mean um, the push or vision to make Aroostook County the biathlon capital of North America and why it kind of actually started working for a while. So this is an article in the main main magazine. It's called Aroostook on the World Stage. It's from December 2010. Um, <clears throat> on February 4th, thousands of spectators, millions of viewers, and hundreds of athletes will invade Northern Maine for the Biathlon World Cup. Russell Courier, one of Aroostook's own, has a chance to compete and show the world just how linked Biathlon and, quote, the county have become. <clears throat> Russell was my assistant coach, you know, for a year. It was pretty cool. We kind of, we brought him in to Umpy and had him working or ready to work with our athletes. He did work. He, Russell is a great man. Uh, uh, quiet, competitive uh, he is extremely athletic and it's, it's an unexpected athleticism in some ways when you, as this article talks about, you know, just his general demeanor, you wouldn't, you wouldn't and expect the, um, wealth of athleticism that does pour out, uh, from him. He's a phenomenal skate skier, obviously, um, and a successful biathlete and considering his background, it's kind of phenomenal. This story, this article actually kind of talks about it. Um, again, this is from 2010. Um, I'm going to kind of uh, skim through some of this, give you some of the history. So it, it, it talks about how they're going to have this World Cup biathlon 2011. This is just a uh, second paragraph. This is not just a one-off event for the 10th Mountain Ski Center in Fort Kent and Nordic Heritage Center in Presque Isle. Uh, those are the two places, obviously, referred to on the Single Track podcast. But rather a celebration of a decade-long relationship that was conceived by the Maine Winter Sports Center and embraced and nurtured by the people of Aroostook County. The Maine Winter Sports Center arrived at the stated goal of using Nordic skiing and biathlon events to help the area expand economically, provide youth with facilities and equipment that promote a healthy lifestyle, and create a unique cultural touchstone that the region can call its own. With the 2011 World Cup, these goals have come to fruition. This would have been kind of the golden age of Maine Winter Sports Center vision. 
<clears throat> Courier, 23, a native of the county, has made the initial World Cup team and has a chance to compete on one of the sport's largest stages in front of his hometown crowd. He's a product of the Maine Winter Sports Center, and his personal growth has mirrored that of biathlon in the area. His career has flourished due to hard work, commitment, and drive to be the best at what he does. This would not have been possible, however, without the support of the local community, the guidance of world-class coaches, and opportunities unique to northern Maine. The same conditions that lined up to create the 2011 World Cup are the forces that have made Courier's career and his Olympic aspirations possible. Of course, Courier made the 2014 and 2018 Olympic teams, so that was after this was written. When he's not traveling, Courier lives with his parents at the top of a series of rolling hills in Stockholm, a small town between Fort Kent and Presque Isle, the two major centers in Aroostook. Aroostook. Their house, like most in the region, is characterized by its view of vast woodlands. Six months of snow cover every year and the selection of hunting rifles leaning against the front door. Courier doesn't have the build or demeanor one expects of a world-class biathlete. He is short, reserved, and when not on skis, lacks evidence of his inner competitive nature. When he's gliding over woodland trails with a rifle on his back and hitting targets the size of a silver dollar from 50 miles away, 50 meters away, however, he's one of the most feared competitors in the United States. Until age eight, little about Courier suggested he was built for skiing. He was just like any other kid, bumping along in grade school, struggling personality-wise, kind of withdrawn, Carl Terriel, a volunteer biathlon event announcer and owner of Valley Auto in Fort Kent, says. He was a bit overweight, kind of an unathletic kid, not the skier you see today. An initiative called Healthy Hometowns, a product of the Maine Winter Sports Center, came to Courier's school, Stockholm Elementary, and offered nearly free rental skis to the students, and Courier took advantage. I wouldn't have been able to afford skiing without that program, he says. So then he finds this niche um, and the community. Well, I'll keep going here. He finds a niche and says, who knows where Russell would have ended up had he not had this opportunity knocking at his school door. This has given him a chance to totally change his view of the world. That was from Terriel. Carl is uh, one of the kindest people you will ever meet in the Nordic ski community. He he is... um, he keeps up the Fort Kent trails, the 10th Mountain Center there. Um, it's pristine condition. He's really, you know, that's his baby. And it's it's a wonderful place. If you are ever, even in the New England region, <clears throat> remotely close at all, it's worth visiting that place. Um, fall, summer, or winter, really. Um, if you're an avid Nordic skier, the roller ski loop is fun. And then obviously the trails in the winter are, are just phenomenal. Uh, let's see. Uh, so here now we get to kind of the history. Um, Andy Shepard, president and CEO of the Maine Winter Sports Center, once believed, like many people from southern Maine, that he had Aroostook County figured out. I imagined it was a rural wasteland, there, that there was economic devastation, and it was going to be depressing. Instead, he came away from his first visit amazed at the beauty, pride, and sense of community that imbue Aroostook. It's a remarkable part of the state that's not getting the attention it should, Shepard says. The area has had its struggles, jobs are scarce, and some of its rustic charm has given way to fast food restaurants and strip malls. As a result, many children lack healthy guidance. In an effort to address these issues, Shepard, with ongoing support from the Libra Foundation, started the Maine Winter Sports Center in 1999 as a way to utilize the county's natural advantages, its low population density, the most consistent snowfall outside the Rocky Mountains, and a hardworking community to promote biathlon and Nordic skiing. 
Shepard saw the potential in pairing children to the sport as a strategy for fixing some of the county's problems and fostering a lasting connection with biathlon. <clears throat> and so this is kind of an amazing thing. And, and with the help of that Libra Foundation, you know, they poured a bunch of money into the county to promote Nordic skiing. They made it very accessible to an incredibly wide swath of, of kids. The program that they're talking about here for $45 a year, 2,500 sets of skis were brought in, access, free access to Nordic trails. Um, and Terry all said, you know, skiing is an elite sport. The beauty of this program is now it's not. Uh, and, and anyone... Instead of, you know, hanging out, go smoking after school, going home to play video games, they're going out to ski. The article talks about how Caribou High School, and this is, uh, you know, 15 miles from Presque Isle, lit trails, groom trail system, uh, well kept up. The, the Carl Soderberg, a construction worker, you know, a wealthy construction worker, really poured his money, his time, his equipment into developing that system. They had uh, at Caribou High School, right next to the Nordic Trails, a hill for alpine training with its own chairlift and again, a lit hill, um, just really accessible. And what was the result from this? Well, this article talks about Courier, who established himself as a top Nordic skier during middle school and high school, um, and then was presented with the opportunity to move into biathlon. So here's the part that I think is phenomenally uh, or phenomenal about Russell is he was essentially that uh, the product of what can happen when someone just goes, you know what, I am I'm gonna do what I can with my money to make Nordic skiing just completely accessible to everyone. And so you had this county here that had all the natural um, ingredients for a, a great Nordic ski center, like it had mentioned, you have, it's rural, it's hilly, there's lots of snow, it's dependable, long seasons. Even in the fall, you've got, you know, unbelievable roller skiing terrain. And they, they decided, let's just dump this money in here so that, so that cost is not a barrier. Coaching is not a barrier. So there were elite level coaches at all levels. Kids got into skiing. It became what you do. And for a, a generation there of kids, it really, you know, took off from, a, you know, it would have been around 2004, I think when this started, I don't know if this is the article, um, 2004 was the World Cup in Fort Kent, actually. So, you know, you're talking like more like 2000, a little bit right before. And kids that were born there, born around that time and got through the main winter sports center right at, at its peak. And, and even a little bit past that, you know, 2008 until about 2015, a strong, rich culture of Nordic skiing developed very quickly there. Um, and it, and it, at Umpy, where I coached, you saw it there in some of its history. The teams were actually a pretty decent size. And you had lots of Nordic ski trails that were being well-maintained and used by people of all different abilities for all different reasons. Um, and, and that's elite. It's... Um, elderly, it's youth, high school, just everything. Oh, oh, basically what I'm trying to say is it was a utopia, you know, to some degree when you have um, access that's easy for all these kids in a beautiful place. You know, skiing at its root, this is, this is what the Midwestern pioneers back in the 1910s who came from Norway when they envisioned that Idreat uh, mentality and idea it was there before kind of snow and winters became less predictable. Now it's, you know, kids, yeah, great population, Minneapolis, there's lots of kids doing it, but it's around a, you know, snowmaking loop and whatever. Well, Maine is kind of authentic. It, it really is 
quite close to what you would see in um, places in rural Norway, very much the same way with these farmhouses, the ruralness. Um, and and, and I, I'm shocked at how quickly that culture was developed. Um, yeah, sure, some guy or some foundation with a lot of money and a guy with a great vision and determination, you would think that he could do something, but it's amazing how fast that all happened. But what's also more amazing is how fast it all went away. And even in my one year there, 2019 was actually when Maymoner Sports Center turned into OSI. So the Libra Foundation pulled its funding. Shepard actually stepped down. You can look at that article too in 2019. OSI kind of rebranded itself as an outdoor, um, outdoor overall outdoor activities, getting kids outside. Still really a positive thing. OSI still actually does have a Nordic program with a great coach, great leadership there, but it's not the same Olympic pipeline development. Let's make this the hub for World Cup level skiers and biathlon athletes. It's it's not that anymore. Okay, but but yeah, I mean, this idea that I researched through that ski pipeline article talking about how, oh man, maybe Nordic skiing really is a sport kind of only for the wealthy, kind of only for kids who start it really young. You know, there's so much skill acquisition um, to it. Well, look at Russell, you know, a kid who slightly overweight, not interested in sports really at all. Um, And he kind of just takes up that free opportunity presented in elementary school discovers he likes it now he's spending time skiing around his trails around the fields just you know like falling in love with the sport coming to it late becoming relatively elite and then really hitting another level um when he won the junior nationals in biathlon i think it was and they talk about what his breakout race was but in 2004 you know it says he was inspired by the world cup that came to fort kent he saw these high caliber athletes on his home course that really gives you the idea that being competitive at that level isn't necessarily out of reach at all. So he starts with the Winter Sports Jalbert Youth Program. He grows up in it. Um, let's see. At that 04 World Cup, you know, kids out. It talks about kids being along the course, racing. Um, the Jalbert Youth Program. What the one that nurtured Courier was, quote, developed with generous funding from Phyllis Jalbert, a local benefactor inspired by the World Cup. So again, people with money making the sport accessible. In 2004, Shepard was focused on getting people to recognize the potential of Arusta County as a biathlon center. In 2011, he's hoping to open 120 million European eyes to the rest of the county, pique their interest, and then sustain it. Europeans love the outdoor activities that Aroostook has in abundance. With additional support from the Libra Foundation, he's developed a website and an aggressive marketing campaign hoping to capture their interest and turn the county into a four-season tourist destination. Yeah, I mean, this, this, this article and the other one I found too as well, it's sad now looking back because, you know, Shepard's vision really was special and it wasn't just great, in my opinion, and I know I'm not the best to speak on this, but I, I did walk around and live there for at least one year and, and also kind of feel like I was in the rubble there as the piece were being picked up. When you read about this World Cup happening and how great it was and how lively it was, it, it almost has the feelings of 2020, 2020 in Minneapolis when that World Cup was going to come. Like, wow, this is the grand fruition of a 20-year project of we've started this program. It's grown immensely. 
It's produced an Olympic star, and now we're bringing that World Cup back here. Everyone in the whole world is going to see how great this center is for building athletes. And Arusta County is really from just a sheer Nordic ski environment. You know, if we we're doing the town ranking systems for where it was a great place to be a Nordic skier, that would be very high up on the list. Uh, like I said, when I lived there, I was just kind of shocked to see on these rolling, beautiful roads with, you know, no lines in the middle, not paved. It's just these big hills going by Amish farms and um, incredible um, state park trails and just kind of everything you could ever want if you enjoy running, biking, or skiing. You have all this and you see signs that say, watch for roller skiers. And, you know, someone had kind of explained to me like, yeah, that's from kind of the, the remnants of the main winter sports, you know, area because they had actually cultivated that culture to the extent that they wanted you know drivers to be on the lookout like you're gonna see probably groups of nordic skiers training on roller skis out here and that actually did happen and then at umpy even the facility with a roller ski treadmill you know that was um someone else had told me that that was a part of the main winter sports element too that they had a research lab set up they had a, an inc- incredible resources at, at this tiny school, the University of Maine Presque Isle, um, for outdoor activities, specifically Nordic skiing. And then, of course, you had the just mega facility in Presque Isle, the Nordic Heritage Center. I mean, by mega, I mean um, pr- pristine is a better word. The trails, fist homologated, challenging. You know, they hosted the Super Tour the year that I was there, the Super Tour Finals. Um, and that was, uh, you know, uh, now, now looking at it, you almost feel like that was a go- going away party. Like, Hey, this was built and it was here, but it, you know, I think it's going to be done now. <laughs> and you look at the Ivan Bobikov days and the Andy Newell days, they were out at Prescott more than once, you know, for some races, but that's just a beautiful place sitting out there now. And, it, and it's not groomed every day. You know, it was frustrating as a coach there, even that, it wasn't manicured like the Fort Kent one is. Fort Kent again. Carl is there. If you show up to ski, you're gonna you're gonna have grooming there if it can be done. Um, but you know you had these two centers that were built um, to kind of foster this as well. So now we read these articles and it's just you, you hear about oh it's gonna be a lifetime thing. This is gonna be the center. This is gonna be the epicenter of biathlon. I think that was the line one article wrote. It's just kind of sad, you know. And so going all the way back, the Sophia Lockley. A little bit disconnected from reality. But the other comment I was going to say, this guy, this guy hosting it, single track, I know I gave him a little plug, great interviews, uh, subjects, but man, he has voice and his his approach here is, I don't know, it's almost like it's so soft and quiet. It, 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 it has me almost creeped out. Here, listen to this clip and see if you agree. Right. Well, one more thing before we close the book on your background in Maine, I do for a second want to spend some time propping up the Northeast mountain running and ski scenes because I think that areas like Sunday River and Sugarloaf are cool and same goes for the White Mountains in New Hampshire and of course you have the Appalachian Trail. I don't know, am I crazy here? Yeah. One more thing that I would like to say as we close the book on your Maine experience. I don't know. Like, anyway, moving on. The other clip I wanted to share here is Sophia Lockley talking about her transfer uh, from Middlebury to the University of Utah. Um, I don't know. I'm interested. I I wanted to play this. We'll talk about once it's done. Here here it is. I 
my first years there were great and then I ended up making like huge jumps in my results and just needing a bit more support because I was traveling a lot and that's when the the D3 aspect of Middlebury kind of held me back and um why I decided to go to Utah's just even though like my competition wasn't really changing the fact like the resources at Utah are just incredible and the women's team there was incredibly strong and that's I mean like most other sports like training with people that are better than you and can push you that's like the way to get better and that for me was what drew me and then obviously there's other benefits um like the just insane support and resources at Utah is pretty it was very eye-opening um coming from a place like Middlebury and I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm really curious. So this was a great question that was posed to her about, you know, talking her transferring from Middlebury. But uh, and she got around to answering, you know, saying that the depth of the team at Utah was a big reason uh, for her move. I feel like I would have led with that. And the reason I say that is, I guess my initial reaction when it was when she said kind of, all the resources were just amazing and that support there in, in terms of resources. She kind of kept hanging around there. You almost get the vibe that like, oh, it's in Salt Lake City. Uh, you know, U.S. ski team is based in Park City. Uh, is there some sort of under the table unfair advantage that the University of Utah Nordic ski athletes are receiving? And that's why we're having this flood of kind of transfers there, you know, now. That's probably kind of dark for me to even postulate. I have no evidence of that whatsoever. Okay, so that's not me claiming anything like that. But um, I guess when when she kind of hovered around there for a long time, it made me wonder that. I mean, Middlebury, when, when it comes to cross-country skiing, the D3 aspect, uh, how does that actually impact you in any way? Like everyone is skiing Division One. Middlebury is one of the top, teams in the EISA they've got a great coach with um you know world cup experience I think right isn't Andrew Johnson wasn't he even on the Olympics in like 02 or something um so you've got everything is kind of right there and and I don't know you you transfer to the Alabama I guess of Nordic skiing but it's more like if Alabama was literally the only team in the SEC it's not like you're now facing a bunch of other really tough people I, I don't know I don't know where I'm going with that other than it just seems it seemed shady when it happened almost and then it just made it worse but but what I what I, that yeah her answer almost made that worse I I think um and again n- no evidence here or whatever but I think Sophia and Novi being at the University of Utah and then Miles have like his work at, as a coach there of really trying to change the culture of we're not just going to recruit European talent. We're going to develop American talent, which is something that, you know, I gleaned from listening to the interview with Novi and Laura McCabe um, from earlier this year on Chad Salmela's show that that's encouraging. So if I'm overthinking this and really the transfer was more about Sophia wanting to train in a different location with a lot of athletes that could really push her, fine, I guess I could go there. Like, and she did kind of talk about that, that, hey, the performance took a big jump. So I, you know, in the most humble way, essentially, she's saying I kind of outgrew my own Middlebury team. I think that's that's somewhat fair, you know? So uh, maybe there's nothing to that answer. 
just seemed kind of interesting to me. And on that point, you know, I think what University of Utah is doing is pretty great. And I think we were high, we're high due for a time of us going out, interviewing some of the NCAA teams and getting kind of maybe making a cedarsgear.com preview to kind of drum up some excitement here for the NCAA ski scene because it is worth getting excited about, I believe now. It's gone from, as Novi McCabe said, the place where you go to have your ski career die to a place where you can go and thrive. And and so it's getting to be a little bit bigger. There's getting to be these high-level World Cup athletes on the men and women's side staying in the NCA system for at least a couple of years. So I think as a ski community, as podcasters, as journalists, it's up to us to kind of um, fuel some of that fire, foster some of that conversation. Let's debate it. Let's get these coaches on. Let's talk about it because th- there's some something to be said about the enthusiasm that can come when those stories are told. Or told, sorry, told. <laughs> when the stories are told by us writers who know what to say and write good. Um, uh, yeah, it, there's something to be said as well about, you know, a journalist covering something and and uh, giving us reason to follow it. I think there is some power in that. I point to the Let's Run.com podcast for that uh, in regards to um, World Cup, or I'm sorry, the, the USA track and field scene. I think there's some excitement uh, for fans now following the drama between Noah Lyles and Arian Knight and, and keeping tabs on the all-time greats like Althang Mo and Sydney McLaughlin and, and on all the rest. They do a good job of doing that. They're much bigger than us, but I think we can do that for skiing. So let's go. You know, with that being said, still on the docket, a few things I wanted to touch on. We'll have to get it to the next show. We've got uh, hopefully some more content coming at you soon. Uh, we don't want to make you sit around and wait. We have a big day of production tomorrow. We're hoping to um, get some sound bites organized so that we're, we're on our new system, by the way. So some of our legendary sound bites have been, they're not on this computer. And so if you're, if you've been we're bored by the intro today, I apologize. Uh, it's just the nature of our s- switching some of our systems here. So we, we know you come for the content anyway, right? You're, you're coming to hear us blabber nonsense going, uh, you know, on 80 minutes here. Uh, so Anyway, we'll we'll have some more great content on our next show. We got to talk about this world record roller ski that happened. Um, uh, Bolshinov and the Russians. I think we got to talk about what kind of World Cup look like there. I still want to talk winners and losers from the IAAF World Track and Field Championships, the first that has happened ever on U.S. soil. Um, if you have Peacock, you, you best go back and watch the 10 days of action. Uh, it, it's phenomenal. It's fun. It's great drama. And uh, keep your eyes posted there on cedarskier.com. We're going to be putting up some new content as well. I'm hoping to get a column up about the trials and travails of getting that thesis statement done. And I have I, I am working on some uh, independent story projects as well that are going to be ski related. They're going to be spicy. They're going to be good. And I, I think that's going to be something that we we do a better job of this year is trying to get some specialized specialized content because oh I didn't even bring this up. You know, it looks faster skier looks like they're looking for a new managing editor. I don't really know what's going on over there, but is this a source we can, a place we can still go and congregate it? I feel like when this happens, you're like, oh my gosh, we rely on faster skier for so much stuff and, and we need these media outlets to kind of stay humming. And so who knows what's going to happen there? Makes you a little nervous. Are people going to start flooding to the cedarskier.com website to find out other news? Who knows? Maybe that's the next uh, big break. 
Um, so that we got to get a little bit of chat uh, talking about that as well. And um, who knows, you know, like we still haven't talked or read through our live reaction to the manifesto from Nils Vanderpool about training, you know, 29 hours a week uh, in five days, five days per week sessions. So we do have to do that. We're going to get to it. Don't worry. Um, all that and more this week on the Serious Gear Podcast and moving forward. So check out SeriousGear.com. Go to our anchor. Follow us. Like us or whatever. Uh, tell your friends, um, you know, because it's, it's good time. All right. I guess it's I guess that is our time as well here on Shuffle Like Public Radio. So keep on striving. Keep on skiing. Make it, make it rain. First of all. Make it rain. Make it rain. You see, the critic of air must use air to make a case against air. The fact that he's able to make an argument at all proves that he's wrong. And uh, and from that, I, it's sort of up to me to pick the ones that I really like, which is, can be super hard. Uh, yeah. I'm sure you have experience with testing two very nice pairs of skis, you know, that they feel exactly the same. Let's go. Ain't no way they can stop me now, daddy, because I'm on my way. I can feel my way. On the back stretch, it is Mellon and Richardson. During the race, she heard me. I'm very flattered about that. <laughs> You're skiing very wise. You know, we're going to have to work hard. We're going to we're gonna have to train hard. But, you know, this, this group has got, a, has got an hourly work ethic, you know, so that's not going to be the problem. Ain't no way they can stop me now, Daddy, cause I'm on my way, I can feel my way coming.